if the government is printing 5% more dollars and they're using that money to do things, they've essentially taxed you with the money that you already have without you knowing it. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and this week I'm kicking off with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, for you new Bitcoiners out there, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. I bought a Nano S back then, and I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you as a Bitcoiner to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you are an Android phone user, you can connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. We're in a bull market. Why would I be selling my Bitcoin? Now, I've started using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Next up, we have my newest sponsor, which is Compass Mining, but they're not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass. I bought myself five S19s. Anyway, look, it's good to be back mining. I really fucking love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be sporting the decentralized growth of hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can now mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do all the other work for you. If you are interested in mining and want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S, M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. And also, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card is the easiest way to do this because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats as you get Bitcoin with every purchase. Not only that... In your first three months, you get 3.5% back in Bitcoin, and everything you spend over $50,000 annually, you will get 2% back. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Steve, how are you? Oh, fantastic. Good to see you in person, Peter. Yes, thanks for coming. Uh, we had a last-minute cancellation. Uh, somebody had COVID. Uh, we had all our equipment here, and I was like, who do I know in Nashville? And then you pinged me when I was in Nashville and said, let's have a beer. And I was like, i got to get Steve back on. And uh, we had a beer last night. And I was like, what do you want to talk about? What's like, what's bothering you right now? And uh, you mentioned inflation, which is something high on my mind at the moment. Uh, inflation rates vary depending on who you speak to. I think CPI is at five point. Did you tell me 5.4? Five and a half percent, 5.4. Yeah, that's, that's quite high. Yeah. Uh, PPI, I've got it down here. PPI is 8.3%. Energy is at 25%. Uh, the energy sector in the UK at the moment, uh, wholesale rates, I think for gas, are up 250%. And we've seen, I think, four companies go to the wall now, and the government have had to step in. Um, also, I've, I've been looking to buy a house. house I wanted to buy last year is up 30%. Um, and houses seem very expensive at the moment. So I'm feeling like there's not a particular honest conversation of, 
of inflation happening outside of the Bitcoin people. No, that's that's exactly right. Well, as a matter of fact, Bloomberg just um, released an article today on on housing, and you know we we've been looking at this for a while because if you look at lumber cost, lumber costs have gone up four times, four hundred percent, in the last eighteen months. Uh, copper has been up anywhere between two and three hundred percent, and those are the two most expensive components in buying in, in building a house. So uh, the Bloomberg report shows housing, um, you know, housing prices are up, you know, twenty percent, um, and which is which is quite high. But that's on average in the United States. Some areas are up double, thirty percent, like like what you're experiencing, fifty percent. I mean, here in Nashville. It's about fifty percent higher. What do you think is driving that on the house prices? Is that is that because there's not enough new build, or is there something else going on? You know, it's a combination of a few different things. So, so first of all, there is real inflation happening. Uh, even though CPI is five and a half percent, that's a number that is recorded by the U.S. government based on certain things and leaves out other things, right? Um, things like energy and housing and food aren't, 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 aren't necessarily included the way that they should be included. And as we know, most people's paychecks in the United States, in some cases, up to 65% of their paycheck is housing. So that's what really affects the normal person, the average person, right? Um, so there's a few factors. One of them is uh, supply chain issues as well, right? We already mentioned inflation, money printing leads to things being, you know, costing more, but um, supply chain issues have caused issues with things like lumber and copper, like I mentioned earlier, which are the main components in building new houses. Um, and not just houses too, cars. Uh, we, have a, we have a chip shortage, which is causing car prices to go up, if you can even find the car that you want. Yeah, like secondhand car prices are going up. Yeah, I talked to somebody yesterday who bought a used Jeep Wrangler and sold it back a week later to the dealership for $10,000 more than what you bought it for. That's incredible. Yeah, I don't well, even know what to say about this. Well, I got my debt a car recently, and it was a four-month delivery, and they were only getting a delivery of two cars that month. Yeah, And right. that, they, they had supply chain issues, plus COVID issues with factories shutting down, plus chip shortage issues. Right, plus... Inflation. Plus inflation. Things just cost more to make. It's, it's obviously concerning. Uh, thinking back to the housing situation, is this also therefore affecting rents? Do we know if there's rent inflation? Because I know in the US there's a lot of places have rent controls, not everywhere. I know someone right. like LA does. Do we know if this is impacting rents? It, it, it is. So there was another report that, that was just published this week as well that shows that year over year, Rent in the United States is up 11% on average. Now that's across all markets. Um, the markets where people uh, that are that have become the more desirable markets, where people are moving into, like Nashville, um, you know, Tennessee in general, Georgia, Florida, Texas, um, rents are up as high as 25% in those areas. Jesus. So, you know, not only are houses more, rents are much higher, and. Uh, Another interesting thing about housing prices is, you know, again, in the United States, um, not only are the prices up and rents are up, um, first-time homebuyers are down. So it used to be about 33% of all housing sales were to first-time homebuyers. It's dropped to 29%. That means that first-time 
uh, home buyers can't afford the houses or they're getting bid out of it by Wall Street companies that are buying houses and turning around and renting them out. Yeah, I've read, I can't remember if it was a report or it was within a book I read, but when I was looking into Mnuchin and what happened with, I can't remember the name of the bank he was involved in, but uh, after the FDIC bailed out the banks, I think it was BlackRock were buying up, you know, thousands of distressed properties. That's right. um, At a reduced rate. Uh, and that was like their model, that was their revenue model, and they were pricing people out. Um, uh, and I know we should be support capitalism, but this is skewed capitalism because they're buying the property with loans, and I believe the loans were coming from the Mnuchin Bank, which was bailed out by the FDIC. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I want to double-check that, and I'll put it in the show notes, what actually the article I've read. But I, I was amazed by the, the, the I mean... The portfolio was tens of thousands of properties, maybe more. That's 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 well, that's incredible. But you know, and I know a few years ago there were a lot of these private equity companies that were popping up. That the entire business model was to buy single-family homes, which was sort of a new thing in the last ten years. You know, usually uh, there's these you know private equity you know real estate funds that buy commercial properties or apartment buildings, but single-family homes is is really a new thing. And, um, and, and and I can't remember if BlackRock has its own fund that does this or if they're investing in other, you know, either affiliated or outside funds that do that. But, but they certainly were involved in, uh, in, in purchasing these single-family homes and then turning around and renting them out for much higher prices. Yeah. For me, this is, I think this, this is really bad. Uh, it's really bad for because I think everyone should and want to. Everyone who wants has a desire to home, own a home should be able to afford it. Right. You know, I was fortunate enough. My my first house, my dad lent me five thousand pounds for the deposit, and I bought a house. Mm. Uh, I know with my kids, by the time they get onto the housing ladder or want to get on the housing ladder, it's going to be significantly more expensive. Right. And they they will probably have zero chance of affording something until they're in their thirties, like realistically without any help. Um, and I think pricing people out of a home, owner, home, home ownership is a sign that we've got serious problems within the monetary system. That's right. Because we're rewarding, it's, it's, the, it's the feared argument, we're rewarding the hedge funds and the Wall Street by giving them the ability to take ownership of these homes and pricing families out. Uh, I don't think it's an argument for or against capitalism because I think this is where capitalism's gone haywire. Right. No, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think this is for or against capitalism either. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm for capitalism. But, um, but when you have a, 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 a Federal Reserve and a, and, a, and a Treasury Department that is literally printing money and fueling inflation. So, so what happens when you, when you, when you print money, um, it taxes everybody that holds dollars. Very, very, very plain and simple. You, know, and you, should, you should explain that way because some people don't think of it like that. I, you know, I... I I tend to uh, try and share some of these ideas on Facebook with friends and family. Right. You know, and I keep referring to inflation as a hidden tax. And the message doesn't always land. I think people have st- kind of been gaslit into believing inflation is a sign of a growing economy and it's okay as long as it doesn't get out of hand. Two right. per- 2% inflation is great. Right. Well, so, so first of all, you know, yeah, 2% inflation is fine. But the CPI, is five and a half percent. By the way, that's not even a real number, but we'll use it. We'll use that for argument's sake. We'll use five percent 
Although I believe the real inflation rate is closer to 15 to 18%, maybe even higher. Um, but let's say that it's 5%, like CPI says. Um, that means that enough money has been printed to increase the supply by about 5%. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple math. So if you have $100 and you decide that you're not going to invest that $100, you're just going to keep you know, that $100 bill, hide it under your mattress, you know, keep it for a year. A year from now, the purchasing power of that $100, is still $100, but the purchasing power a year later is only $95, okay? And, okay, you see how that hurts you, but how is that tax? Well, if the government is printing 5% more dollars and they're using that money to do things, they've essentially taxed you with the money that you already have without you knowing it. It's, it's simple. It's a very simple concept. Let's take it a step further, right? Um, you know, and we talked about this last night um, over food and drinks. El Salvador, okay? Why, why, would, why would El Salvador go away from the dollar standard to the Bitcoin standard, right? Well, if you have a $100 bill here in the United States, and the U.S. government's printing more money and they're taking that money and now that $100 is worth 5% less, anyone that holds U.S. dollars is also being taxed, regardless of what country you live in. So if you're a resident of El Salvador or you're the treasury of El Salvador is in dollars and there's 5% inflation on the dollar, then you've just been taxed by another country that, and, and, and you're a sovereign country. So why wouldn't you move to a standard that, that has a limited supply? Well, and add to that, your imports have become more expensive. That's exactly right. And you've not received any stimulus checks, so that money that's been printed, at least there's some resid residual effect within the US. You know, maybe you've received a stimulus check. Maybe mm -hmm. there's been some build-out of the infrastructure. Like, it, there's some residual benefits within the US. There's almost zero for El Salvador. That's right. Yeah, you're not, you're not getting anything for that money. No. So, um, but, but this also brings up another point, right? So, so the people that usually suffer are uh, people that are, uh, you know, middle class and lower, working class, middle class, or uh, retirees, okay? So we, we talked about how the dollar works if you're just holding dollars, right? And, you know, if you're a retiree, you might be holding a lot of dollars, but you're also holding a lot of bonds, fixed income, okay? So if you think about where U.S. treasuries are right now, the 10-year treasury yields 1.5%. And the way that bonds work is, you know, and I know you already know this, Pete, but, you know, this is for everybody else. The way that bonds work is if I give the government $100, they give me $100 in bonds, and they pay me a buck fifty every year, for 10 years. And then I get my $100 back after 10 years. Okay. That sounds kind of okay. I don't want a dollar fifty. I'd want much, you know, I'd want much more. But if you're a retiree, you, you don't want to lose, you don't, you don't want to risk losing that hundred dollars. So a dollar fifty sounds really good. Well, if the inflation rate is 5% a year, then that means that a year later, that hundred dollars that you put into buying the bond, if you were to take it back 
it now only has the purchasing power of $95. In year two, you know, and, and granted the math is not going to be exact here because, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a percentage of, 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 a, of a smaller number. But year two, it's going to be about $90. Year three, 85. Year four, 80. If it stays at 5%. If it stays at 5%. Right now it's more than 5%. So if, if it stays there and slightly above 5%, you're basically getting $50 back, right, 10 years later, and as far as purchasing power goes. Put in $100, you get $50 back 10 years later, and all you've received for that is $1.50 a year for 10 years, $15. So you've essentially lost $35 in that trade, and as far as purchasing power goes, right? So that, that doesn't make any sense, right? If you're a retiree and you have a fixed income, you know, you're, you're, you're 65 years old, 70 years old, hoping that you can, you know, you can make your money last, it's not going to last, right? You're not going to be able to afford things. You're not going to be able to afford food. You're not going to be able to afford housing. And you're not making any more money either. You're making $1.50 for every $100. So this is where the real problem is. Well, what has the impact been on the bond market? Because people are still trading bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. bonds haven't been you know, marked as junk bonds yeah. yet. People are still trading bonds. Uh, so what's happening in that market? Or is it, is it, have they sold the belief this is transitory right. and therefore we will have high inflation this year, but as the economy reopens up and uh, supply chains fix, that the inflation rate will come down. I mean, my own view is, is my simplistic view is from everything that I've studied and read. Uh, I, I've read uh, When Money Dies about the Weimar Republic. I've obviously been out to Venezuela. I'm, following with interest what's happening in Lebanon and Turkey. I'm not saying that the US is certainly going down the same path, but it does feel like actually we could be heading towards much higher inflation rates. I, I think we certainly will, and, and, and we certainly can, but, but we certainly will. And, you know, before I became a, you know, degenerate Bitcoin hodler, and I traded bonds. I was a, I was a bond manager. And... One of the things that you should know, and, and by the way, this was in a period where, where rates were low, you know, part of, part of the time that I did this. And when the way that bonds work is if, you know, let's say that rates are 3% and rates go down to one and a half, well, bond prices go up mm. during that period of time. So yields go down, bond prices go up. When prices go down, yields go up, right? So what you do as a as a bond trader, is you're essentially buying bonds, hoping that yields will continue to go down. And by the way, I do think yields will continue to go down. This 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 spike that we've just seen to one and a half percent is is temporary. Uh, people are getting excited. They're seeing a trend. They think it's going to go up. I, I I think it goes. I don't think it goes below above two percent. I think it goes right back down. Negative. But I I think it definitely could go negative in the U.S. Right. It's already negative in Germany. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't think we you know. Um, you know, there's there's other countries in Europe that have experienced negative yields. U.S. is a tough call. It could happen. But the trade is buying bonds and then selling them as the price appreciates. And you're just eking out a little bit of a trade each time. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize about bond funds and bond managers is there are certain investors that that's all they can hold. Right, um, they they have to have a certain percentage of their portfolio in bonds. Uh, examples of that are life insurance companies, 
um, you know, they, they have certain restrictions that they, they, they have to hold bonds, pension funds, um, certain endowments, certain trusts, they have to hold bonds. So it's a market that is going to exist whether it's a, it's a good buy or not. And then, of course, you know, conventional wisdom has always been that in a, in a person's portfolio that they hold, you know, 70% equities, 30% bonds. And that's sort of how, you know, a lot of financial advisors, you know, tout what allocation should be. And they just buy it because it's conventional wisdom. So, so, so there's a market there. But as a bond manager, you're, you're, you're constantly trying to, like, you know, play that price swing and get whatever you can out of it and earn whatever yield you can. Um, Evergrande. Right. So that's a big one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, so if, if, if you're earning one and a half percent on treasuries and you find this random Chinese uh, real estate company that's paying you a lot more, you're going to put that in your portfolio if you're a, a PIMCO or a BlackRock. BlackRock held Evergrande bonds. You know, we, we saw that. Because they're not hitting the yield that their clients are expecting. So they're having to really reach out to really risky assets like Evergrande just to boost their yield enough to, to get close to that. You know, if it's, if it's uh, pensions or insurance, it's the actuarial assumptions that you have to hit as far as yield goes in order to just satisfy your clients. So, so these are big risks. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was involved in emerging market bonds and um, 2009, you know, I was looking at Greek bonds and I was like, man, you get a little bit of yield after that, but it's so risky. And everybody was piling into Greek bonds. Well, a year later, we had some problems, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so if you were piling in just to get that yield, um, it ended up wrecking you, right? But the way that bond managers also think is, well, it's also wrecking everybody, so who cares? My performance isn't going to be hurt that much because everybody's going to get wrecked. Uh, and it's a really, really interesting system. But, but yeah, to go back to your question, right? It's, uh, you know, pe- people are, are really pushing to get some risk. Buying Evergrande bonds, buying anything that's going to give them any kind of yield whatsoever, just, just to hit those expectations of clients. I really struggle with the idea of a pension these days. My father had one. Um, you know, it was direct contribution from his, uh, from his wage every month. Uh, it was a, I think it was a final salary pension. Um, he worked for an airline. He you know, paid into it. Uh, twice he's had a haircut, once just before he retired, once during his retirement. Um, and I, I've myself looked into a pension. Uh, I had one before I got divorced and it got cut in half. And, and I came to the conclusion that the... I came to this conclusion, I think I would rather work forever than have the haircut from my wage each month to have a viable pension because I've met this pension advisor and it was perhaps, perhaps you know, pensions have changed and they're not as viable anymore. But I met a pension advisor and he said, like, how much do you want to have to live on in your retirement? And I was, he said, like, as long as your mortgage is cleared. I was like, okay, well, if my mortgage is cleared and I imagine I want to travel a bit, you know, see my kids and grandkids, I think forty to fifty thousand pound a year as an old that would be fine. I mean, obviously I want a lot more, but that would be fine. And he ran the calculations and he said, you need a pension pot of whatever the number was, like something like one point five million pounds or something. Yeah. And he was like, So you need to be saving, like we ran the calculation based on my salary, and it worked out I needed to be putting something like nearly half my salary into a pension. Right. 
And he said, well, you, you know, you should have started when you were 18. I said, well, I, I didn't. And, you know, I was 33 at the time. But I was just like, a pension is just not a viable option. It's just not a viable option for me. Right. Well, today it's certainly not a viable option for anyone. Well, that's the thing. Is, is, it, is it a dead concept for anyone outside the rich? Yeah. It, well, or a dying concept? You know, and, and, and maybe we have to break out you know, let's 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 bifurcate the top terminology. I think in I think in the UK, pension means something a little bit different than the US. Okay. Um, um, I, you know, in, in, in the UK, when you say pension, it, it generally means your your retirement account, your okay. your your IRA. Um, here, we we also have if you're a public employee, you have a pension where they have a set salary that they pay you after you retire. So, but if you're not a public Handy. employee, yeah. Uh, you 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 live off of your you live off of your savings your 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 IRA your um, and the way that those generally work so so imagine so so, so let's say it was a million dollars right that that you had to have when you retired in order to retire um, and that was ten years ago right so ten years ago you needed a million dollars to retire. And back then, rates were closer to five to six percent. So, if you had a million bucks, you could earn fifty thousand dollars a year, which, again, ten years ago, that was enough for somebody to get by here in the United States, right? You know, um, if that same person thought that, okay, I'm going to retire in two thousand and twenty or two thousand and twenty-one. Um, and I've got a million dollars in the bank, and that worked ten years ago when when my when my financial advisor told me that's what I needed. And you're earning one and a half percent. Okay, you're earning you're not earning fifty thousand dollars a year anymore, mm-hmm. right? You're earning fifteen thousand yeah. dollars. And but let's say for some reason you were still able to earn five percent, right? You still were able to get fifty grand. 50 grand enough to live in the United States anymore? Not when housing is up by anywhere between 10 and 25%, depending on if you're buying or if you're renting. If you're renting and you're and you're a pensioner or a retiree, it, it, you know, even, even at old rates, it doesn't cover it. So how much you need to retire today? It's probably closer to eight, nine million dollars. <laughs> Just say that number. It's ridiculous. Well, so the conclusion I've come to is my, I've got, I have a pension. Yeah. It's Bitcoin. We, we will get into that. Yeah. But also, uh, you know, in spite of what some people think, I'm going to buy a second property, okay, and maybe a third. The idea is like if I can get two two properties, I can only yield off them. The mortgages will be paid by the renter, right. uh, and uh, after I've retired, perhaps there'll be the homes my children have to get them on a ladder. Like right. when I'm dead, basically. So that that's kind of an idea in my head. And you now I talked earlier about BlackRock buying thousands of homes. I obviously don't care if someone owns two or three properties. I think it's a fair investment. But for me, there was no logical sense getting a pension. The logical sense was to get a mortgage, which I, which which will its price will go up. It's what its value will go up with inflation. Actually, right. usually outperform inflation, and then obviously to hold Bitcoin. But I just find the whole concept now of a pension like we have. Dead, and it's really funny. It's funny how like, you talked about the pension that uh, public sector workers get. It's same in the UK. Right, they have the best pensions. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Government jobs are the best. I don't know if the jobs are the best, but <laughs> you can't lose the job, to do, and you tend to get a, a great pension. But it's really putting a lot of people in a really tricky situation. Yeah, uh, and and I feel that there's like a whole number of things like coming at us in all different directions. So we have inflation. 
here out in the US, you've got the uh, the end of the um, rent protection. What was that they did? Oh, that's right. There was a, a moratorium yeah. on, um, on 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 rent prices and um, or rent rates and. Um, um, can't think of the word right yeah. now. Evictions. Well, so if you if you look at so New York's a really interesting case for that. Um, we were in New York a couple of weeks ago doing some work. Me and Jeremy here and a couple of people went for dinner. Went to a steak restaurant, and this was Midtown, not far from Times Square. I think Thirty Eighth Street. So like a popular yeah. area. Yeah. We were there at what five o'clock? Five thirty. Thirty eight. Where were you? Keens? No, I did go there though. <laughs> with, I did go there with Danny, which was. Okay. Unbe- that's the place with all the pipes. With all the pipes. Oh my yeah. God, that- it's one of my favorite places. That was a good steak. Yeah. But no, we were just like more of a touristy one. It was good. Still good. Yeah. Very good steak. And um, I think it was six of us at one table. And I think two other tables had people at it. And every other table was empty. Mm. Um, and I was like, but this is like a Thursday at 530. Right. This should This should be full. And there was a bunch of times I went out to dinner. When I went to Keynes, I went in the evening. It was half empty. Right. And so I feel like there's like all these different pressures coming in different directions. We've got high inflation. <laughs> the other thing I don't understand, we've got high inflation, we've got a struggling economy, yet plenty of jobs available. Right. People can't recruit. Uh, I was up um, north of Boston recently and I went into a restaurant and there was a queue outside, but only half the tables are full because they couldn't get enough staff. That's right. I just feel like in every direction, things are kind of getting skewed and a bit fucked, and I don't know how bad this gets. Yeah. Well, right now, um, we only have a slightly higher than a 5% unemployment rate in the U.S. And and in my opinion, 5% is full employment, right? Because 5% of people don't want to work anyway. But I think there's something like, as far as open jobs go, accounts for something like 8 to 10% of the workforce. So... Yeah, people people just don't want to work unless they have to anymore. And 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 you're, and you're right. That's that that's exactly the reason why these restaurants aren't full. It's not because I mean, yeah, demand might be down a little bit, but uh, you you can't you can't seat people at tables because there's nobody to take care of them. Yeah. Hospitals, same thing, right? Nurses, there's no nurses available. It's not it's not beds. It's nurses. Do you think this is how much of this would you apportion the blame to? mismanagement of the COVID situation. Well, not even mismanagement. Let's say the decisions that were made because we could debate over what was right, what was was yeah. uh, the breaking, essentially shutting down economies, which we, I think we've realized is a, is a disaster. And how much of this do you think is the money printing? I know they're, in, they're intrinsically linked, but do you think even without COVID, this was coming anyway? I do. Um, you know, I think... I think I was actually on your show talking about how I thought that there was going to be a yeah you were yeah <laughs> a beginning of 2020 I believe um, I, I thought that there was going to be a downturn. We actually came on my other show, Defiance, to talk about supply chain. Issues. That's right. We talked about these these exact yeah. supply chain issues yeah. that they would be issues. We talked about oil was going to go negative, and it went negative. <laughs> I should have shorted. <laughs> exactly, um, but but no, I, I think that this has been coming. I think that we we were already at the end of the economic cycle. Um, and usually what happens is when you get to the end of an economic cycle, when, when the market should crash and things should go, go, go wrong, sometimes they'll just keep going. They'll, they'll, they'll keep burning hot for a little bit, and it takes an event to trigger it. And the event was, was COVID. No, no, nobody could, could have predicted COVID as the event, but, uh, but, but that was the event that, that ended up triggering it. And um, 
you know, the, the, the government did what the government thought it should do. It's, it's hard for me to say, hey, this person's to blame, this policy's mm-hmm. to blame after the fact, right? Because, I mean, I mean, what, what have I done if I was in somebody's shoes, right? You, you don't know, right? You, you've got to act fast. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to think about the country. Um, so, uh, but, but you can point to cause and effect, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a situation where states were locking down, localities were locking down the U.S., entire countries were locked down around the world. I mean, look, me and my family, we, we sheltered at home before anybody even said to, right? I mean, we, we didn't know what was going on. We, we decided, we, we locked ourselves in the house for two months. We're like, eh, let's see what happens here. <laughs> we don't we don't quite know yeah. what's going on. Bodies are dropping dead in China. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone's got to answer for that at some point. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so so, but when that's happening, and 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 governments are are telling people they can't go to work, you, you have to do something. You can't just tell people you can't go to work anymore. You can't you can't leave your house anymore, and then not figure out some way to make sure that these people are eating and paying their rent, right? So, so there were policy decisions to, you know, give stimulus checks to certain people. And whether the way they did it was right or wrong, doesn't really matter. Uh, people had to be taken care of, right? If you, if, if, you know, if you, if you say you can't go work, you need to supply that person with food somehow. So, um, but the end result was these these stimulus checks kept coming and coming and coming and coming and people weren't working and got used to, and in many cases in the United States, people were staying home from minimum wage jobs and earning twice as much for staying home as they were working. So why would you, why would you go back work? to work? Yeah. <laughs> right? And when people... Get, and, and this is just psychological. You know, when you're conditioned to do something and you're conditioned to expect a certain thing, you continue to expect that thing and you continue to, you know, to engage in that activity. And that activity was, I'm not going to work and I'll figure it out. Somebody will get the money. It's fine. Okay, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Let's talk about Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, regular listeners know, especially the ones who hear these ads every week, UX is super important to me. I think UX makes Bitcoin a lot easier for no coiners to come in to learn about Bitcoin and use Bitcoin. So when Exodus reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app and they crushed it, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, let's talk about Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, listen, Bitcoin's mooning again. And if you have not got a Casa multi-sig wallet, it's something you really should be thinking about. Because forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you, as a Bitcoiner, to take custody of your Bitcoin. But you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets and you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, I have been a customer for over a year, so if you've got any questions, you can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And lastly, let's talk about Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming. Do you know why? 
why they accept Bitcoin. Yes, you can deposit your Bitcoin on sportsbet.io and go out there and make a few bets. Now, the football season is well underway. It's been a great start. Liverpool doing pretty well. Tottenham have had a ropey middle bit. It's kind of going how we want it. But look, even if you don't like football, Sportsbet have got you covered. Alongside football, they support tennis, they support motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. What, what is the answer to get out of this? Um, it seems like the logical step would be to raise interest rates. We haven't had yeah. uh, interest rates, I think, in the UK above 1%. I actually cannot remember. It feels like we've always been at like 025 or 0.5% for ages. I have to check. I could be wrong. We could be back there. I know in my bank, I get I get a rounding error in terms of interest right. um, above zero. It feels like we should raise interest rates, but that also comes with a knock-on effect in oh. terms of... The economy as well. So, yeah. But it feels like we just need to have this correction. It's like, it's like, it's a, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of my vaping. I keep thinking, I've got to stop, I've got to stop fucking vaping. And I put it off to the tomorrow and then the next day and one more right. day. And I know I'm basically going to, when I get off the plane, I'm going to have to stop because my kids are going to go mad. But it's like, I'm always putting it off. Right. And it just feels like nobody wants to take that, which is a political bullet, really. Yeah. Of saying we need a correction in the economy, and I also feel like that is also potentially an international game of chicken. It is because the U.S. doesn't want to weaken before China. China doesn't want to weaken before the U.S. Right? Yeah, because what what happens is if 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 you raise rates, it it essentially strengthens your currency, and if your currency strengthens, then that means that your exports go down. Because now, you know, if if, if, China, if the U.S. goes first, then China's exports are cheaper, and more people will buy the exports from China for for comparable goods. So it would hurt American businesses, right? And depending on where you are, the other thing with increasing rates right now is, you know, we we were we, were, we spent a lot of time talking about housing earlier. Well, with, with housing prices going up, and, and that's an effect of, of of inflation, money printing, low rates for, for for too long, and if you all of a sudden introduce high rates. Well, mortgage rates are correlated to 10-year treasuries, okay? And if all of a sudden mortgage rates go up, housing is no longer affordable. Right now, it's barely affordable. And it's only affordable because you can get a low mortgage. But if your mortgage price goes up, those housing, the housing at those prices aren't affordable anymore. And you get a potential market crash depending on how much rates do go up by and housing crashes aren't good, as we saw in 2007 and 2008, right? Because people are, you know, that put their life savings into down payment on a home just so they can have a place to live. And now they're upside down to their mortgage. They do things like get out of their mortgage and go rent somewhere and you leave all this inventory and ruin your credit for seven years. So it's a, it's a very delicate situation. I, I actually don't think that the answer is increasing rates at the moment. Okay. I think the answer is um, the Fed balance sheet. And we've been talking about tapering for a few months now, and the Fed came out about a month ago saying that they would potentially be uh, tapering soon without giving any kind of timeline on when that would happen. And tapering meaning they're buying these, these, these securities and assets like bonds onto the balance sheet, but at the same time, they're replacing the ones that are rolling off. Um. 
the smartest move is actually to continue the purchasing while you're letting bonds roll off and then slowly slowing down the purchasing. And as you do that, it eases you into a situation where the, then you can begin to raise rates because that will, that will start to damper inflation. It, it, won't, it, won't, it won't stop it entirely, but it won't create quite a shock where, where, where just average people will get hurt. And that's the real risk is a, a repeat of 2008. But it feels like that could happen anyway, Steve. If I, I do. I feel like it could happen. I, I, I think the difference between today and 2008 was um, we, we were, you know, rates were low then, but we've taken rates much lower now and inflation has finally kicked in. You know, for the last 15 years, everybody's been predicting inflation, inflation, inflation. And inflation takes a long time to come into the economy. Um, now it has. So we, we've got to take action. But here, here's, the other, here's the other result of inflation, by the way. The rich get richer, okay? Because if you can afford to have assets, equities, by the way, you know, stock market, um, equities are highly correlated to inflation. Uh, hard assets, art, wine, houses, land, uh, classic cars, you know, you name it. The more of that you have, the more rich you get in an inflationary environment. The less of that you have, the, 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 the worse off you are. So inflation is good for, for the rich. It is. But it increases the wealth divide, which is the primary issue we're concerning ourselves here, really, because yep. it's not a healthy situation. That's right. Have, have you have you modeled? I mean, obviously, it's important for you to understand this with regards to your work. Have you modeled out worst case scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I, I so we're we're at a really interesting inflection point right now, mm-hmm. where inflation's at the point to where if if the Fed starts to take action and raise rates, we could probably see a stock market correction anywhere between thirty and sixty percent. Wow. And when that happens, people lose jobs, right? Um, you know, companies get shut down. Um, people are upside down in their mortgages. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, it's a whole knock-on effect. And it, and, it, and it certainly hurts people that um, are not rich, right? More than it, more than it hurts the rich. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I think we could see a, I think we see a really, really massive downturn. Do you, do you think the, I mean, I'm guessing those working within the government or with the Fed fully understands we're out with this. They fully understand yeah. the dis- decisions they take, what the impact will be. And it's, it's like stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like, yeah. do we raise rates and see a market correction? Do we continue to print money and drive inflation? Mm-hmm. It feels like whatever happens, a correction is coming. But there isn't the political capital to, to accept this. Yeah, that's but right. like, I know it, you know it. Everyone we know in our communities in Bitcoin know it. We're all buying Bitcoin to protect ourselves. That's right. But it feels like at some point this correction just has to happen in whichever direction. It's, it's like it's giving up the addiction and right. allowing it to come in. But it's, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it, I, I, I find it really scary. It makes me think of the end of the big short. Do you, know, I, you know what I thought was brilliant about the end of the big short? It was like, it's a hilariously funny way of explaining the housing market crisis. Right. But there's like last minute where you see the family pack up their stuff, get in the car, and they've lost their home. Right. And I just feel like we are constantly fucking the little guy. Yeah. No, I, that's that's exactly what's happening, you know, in, in, in both both scenarios. 
Um, and, and here's the other interesting thing about Big Short, too. Mm. And this is, this is really important. A lot of those guys realized that, that this was going to happen. Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, um, you know, I used, I used to work for the, uh, for the reigning Bond King, right? Scott Minard. And in 2005, he was saying, we're going to have a housing crisis of biblical proportions. And everybody laughed at him, right? And 2006, everybody's saying, hey, where's, where's the biblical proportions? Where's this bubble you're talking about? You know, 2007, are you still seeing bubbles? You know, <laughs> 2008, I'm right. Right. So same thing happened in the big short. You know, these guys, you guys had predicted it. They had prepared for it. And, 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 and they didn't make as much money as they could have because the markets were so irrational. You can't really short irrational markets, right? You'll just lose money. You know, markets can re- remain irrational longer than you can reign sovereign. Yeah. So who was that guy? Is it Michael Burry? Yeah. 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 So what's the, what's the role of Bitcoin in all of this? Because, you know, this is a Bitcoin podcast. Uh, and I ask it as a wider question. Like, any of us can buy Bitcoin to try and protect ourselves if we if the thesis is correct. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I still think in a market correction, if you see a 36 forward in the stock market, I think you probably see a big crash in Bitcoin now. I don't think I we are uh, protected against, uh, you know, a, a systemic risk at the moment. I think eventually we may yeah. be. Uh, it's how high we got before that happens. Um, we seem pretty correlated to the S and P. Uh, I think early in the year when we had the big jump up to fifty five k, we outperformed the S and P. But we seem fairly correlated. We can keep talking about at the individual level where you can long term protect yourself against inflation by buying Bitcoin. But is there is there what's the role of Bitcoin now for the state? Because we are seeing various politicians show an interest in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. have taken interest in Bitcoin. So historically, Senator Lummis has been a big proponent of Bitcoin. Right. Warren Davidson in Ohio. But we've now seen Ted Cruz right. become a proponent of Bitcoin. Look, I don't know if he cares or he doesn't, or if this is really just about votes, but we are seeing that. So if you work for the Fed, if you work for the government, how would you advise them with regards to Bitcoin? Well, that's that's a tough one because I mean you said it. Um, Bitcoin has become more highly correlated to the stock market and to other highly risky assets than an inflation hedge. Um, well, let me let me let me let me retract that statement. I didn't mean a inflation hedge. I meant a um, a a downturn hedge, right? So if the stock market goes down sixty percent, Bitcoin goes down seventy, right? It's it's highly liquid. It's still, still a, it's still treated like a speculative asset, and uh, it's, it becomes a risk trade. You know, depending on what it is or what it isn't, doesn't matter. Depends on how people see it and how people trade it. So uh, it will, in a, in a risk-off environment, Bitcoin definitely goes down. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, in the long run, um, when you know, when you, when you, when you, when you zoom out, um, I think it does quite well. Right, and and we've seen that we've seen that um, in in a couple of different you know short term down uh, downturns uh, when the markets drop and Bitcoin drops, um, you know, it it's it's just a blip, right? And it, and it outperforms these other assets, um, you know, like we're talking about. Um, I actually think it's prudent for governments to hold Bitcoin on their on their balance sheet um, for central banks to hold it, and um, I and I think central banks should start doing that instead of things like gold. 
Um, I think we talked about this once um, a couple of years ago. And you're like, hey, should I hold a little bit of gold in my Bitcoin? I was like, no. I did. <laughs> I need, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why I've considered having just some gold allocation. Because I'm irresponsibly on Bitcoin, as yeah. all of us are. Ninety-five percent in Bitcoin, long-term deep cold storage. Yep. I keep stacking. I keep stacking, but uh, if a correction comes, mm. uh, that's going to hit hit my net wealth hard. If you see a thirty to fifty percent correction, uh, so I did think I have considered a few times. It's just having a small gold allocation yep. because I don't believe that is a risk-off asset. I don't believe yep. that drops fifty percent. Yeah, it doesn't drop fifty percent, but. But gold also isn't correlated, and that also means it's not negatively correlated either. Mm. Um, look, I think the thing that people should be buying right now is is, is land and houses, right? If you if you if you want to diversify, I mean, well, that's what I'm going to do. Bitcoin yeah. and real estate. That's that's yeah. it, you know. And then and then if you're you know get get cute, like I sometimes get a little cute, like I'll, I'll buy art and classic cars, you know, and, gun, so, and guns. And guns. <laughs> <laughs> Can't really do that as well in the UK. I think I think the uh, sorry the government's holding Bitcoin on the balance sheet is really interesting because we have one doing it right now. I mean, we're yep. watching El Salvador stack sats. We're seeing yeah. Bukele announce that they're stacking. They're putting it on their balance sheet. I do wonder if there's any others doing it secretly. I don't know. Yeah. It would be interesting. Um, there's no incentive to tell anyone dude. if you're in a stacking strategy. Well, there's no incentive to telling anyone, but at the same time, any any government that is that is borrowing money, issuing sovereign credit, um, usually reports all of their assets. And um, so, I think we would know, especially for larger governments, that they would if they were holding Bitcoin. Um, but it, it is possible, I suppose, that some governments are are stacking and not telling anyone. So, what do you think this means for currencies over the next, let's say, decade? Because we talked we talked about it last night um, when we were. Having those lovely whiskey sours, mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about. You know, I mentioned uh, Bellagi had talked about currency wars. Um, yeah. We are seeing some sovereign currencies collapse. This happened yeah. in front of us. We're seeing Bitcoin grow to. I think it's like the sixth largest currency in the world yeah. right now. Uh, we are talking a lot of seeing a lot of conversation about CBDCs, especially out of China, uh, but there are many other countries looking at that as well now. Uh, we uh, have the U.S. dollar, which is, int- i tell you a really interesting thing about the U.S. dollar. Despite the inflation, I get paid in dollars by all my sponsors because they're right. all American, and it's outperforming the pound at the moment. Right. You know, I, a couple of months ago, I was getting 72. Uh, what was I getting? 72, 0.72, now I'm getting 0.74. Mm-hmm. So w- what do you think is the the future for this? Because we obviously if we're in a time of you know, inflation and, you know, tension and global tension, geopolitical issues. I don't think any kind of uh, physical war is going to be beneficial to anyone, but the idea of currency wars seems kind of interesting. Right. You were saying last night you think the dollar only loses at the moment? Yeah, it can only lose from here. I mean, it's, 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 the, the dollar's been so dominant um, for, for the last few decades that it can only lose. There, there is no more gain for the dollar, right? Um, and, and I'm going to say something controversial, and probably, probably most people won't agree with me, but uh, um, I think the renminbi, you know, and, and we know that China is working very hard to create a, a, a central digital currency, and they will do that with the renminbi, hands down. They're, 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 they're doing it, and they've also been working very hard to um, align themselves with a lot of 
commodity producing countries in South America and Africa and Southeast Asia. Belt and Road. Yeah. And when they're the major trading partner of these countries, they can almost force them to then accept their digital renminbi. And I, and I think that's what's going to happen. Um, it's not even I think. I, I know it's going to happen, right? It, 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 it all depends on how big it gets. Now, some of these other countries that are a little bit more independent from you know, a major trading partner like China, like El Salvador, um, or even Panama, or, or, or some of these other smaller countries that rely heavily on the dollar, I think they'll move to Bitcoin. So I think those are really the two currencies that have a chance of becoming a little bit more dominant. Um, you know, it'll, I, I, it, it could take decades for, for the dollar to use its, to lose its uh, uh, position. Uh, but it can happen. It feels like what China's doing, my understanding of the Belt and Road Initiative is yeah. they build infrastructure projects, they offer huge loans, and I'm you know, perfect, like, perfectly aware that a couple of these countries, these African countries who have had ports and things built, right. now can't afford to pay it back. Yeah. So it, it feels like while the US has been out in the Middle East fighting endless wars, that China has kind of been implemented this soft imperialism. Yeah, that's right. Uh, throughout the world. And... That's it. It feels a bit tricky, and I tell you why I, I worry. I, I, I like the fact there's no war. I prefer yeah. the fact that there's no war, but at the same time, like China's an authoritarian state. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. They and they're have, killing people. They're killing people. Yeah. They have social credit scores. They're wiping out the Uyghurs. They censor content. They've essentially co-opted uh, the uh, Hollywood and the NBA and yeah. you know, the, this. The, the idea of China being an internal issue. For the mm-hmm. Chinese people, it is false. They are spreading censorship around the world. I think yeah. I think Lithuania's just advised people to chuck away a certain manufacturer of phone because it's got built-in censorship into the phone. Apparently, it's not turned on, but you know, they're exporting censorship to the world. Oh. Um, so that's my concern: is what kind of world this takes us into. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure the US has really set a great example over the right. last few years with the Middle East. But at the same time, I'm not sure I really like the idea of a world which is dominated by Chinese politics. Right. Well, and, and, and the U.S. has been doing this, right? Um, you know, most countries' debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for the simple reason that it gives you the most access to capital markets. Right. Uh, if you're a small country and you don't denominate in dollars, maybe you denominate in your local currency or some other currency, you know, yen or euros, you just don't have as much interest, right? If it's denominated in dollars and you know you're getting paid back in dollars, then your capital markets opportunity is is much more massive. So, um, so, so, so that's been happening all along. First of all, right? Um, you know, with, with with China coming in, and and I'm sure that they want countries' debt to be denominated in renminbi, and uh, they'll, they'll they'll force that because they'll be the only lender. Um, with with all of these infrastructure projects, so uh, I, I think they're just China's just using the U.S. playbook. But but you're right, you know, there's there's a lot more issues with China. Mad world we live in, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, I, I guess this is why we all promote Bitcoin and encourage people to hold Bitcoin. And yeah. ultimately, if that becomes the biggest currency in the world, then perhaps that takes some strength away from China. Take some strength away from the U.S. and you know, puts the strength back into us as individuals. Right. Um, but it is—I feel like we're going through really weird times. Like th- 
Okay. I feel like, like, I feel nervous about right. an impending storm, which I, yeah, I think we, I think I perhaps like most people, the first 30 years of my life were relatively, 35 years of my life were relatively easy, mm. you know, uh, fairly stable economy most of the time. I know we had the odd recession and my dad will say, well, you don't remember when you were four and this happened, but generally speaking, very stable times. I feel like we're heading to really kind of quite unstable times. And yeah. I, I don't know how to prepare for it psychologically. I know financially, right. but I don't know how to prepare for this psychologically or where we may go. I don't really have a question there. It's just it's something <laughs> on my mind because I've got children. You've got children, right? That's right. Yeah. And it's like they're coming into it. You know, my son starts college next year. He goes into the, the adult world mm -hmm. in, if he doesn't go to college next year or in three years. And I just keep worrying about what kind of fucked up place we're bringing these them into now. Yeah. I, look, that's it's certainly been a concern of mine for the last 18 months, right? You know, I've got children that are the age where, you know, they're they're finding their tribe, they're finding their, you know, who they, trying to figure out who they are. And the majority of the last 18 months, they've been locked up in a house and can't go anywhere and can't see their friends and can't go to school and communicate through Zoom. And the, these aren't, these aren't healthy, right? And, but by the way, I don't have a solution either. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, people are dying. We, you know, and, and you've got to weigh this. You've got to weigh these things. And everybody, you know, falls on a different part of the spectrum of, of what they think is happening and what they think should, should be. And I, I, I don't know. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm starting to think those, what do they call the preppers? <laughs> I'm starting to think those people who've kind of decided to build themselves a nice house in the middle of nowhere. Right. With their chickens. Yep. Where there are vegetables, I actually started to think, oh, do you know what? You're onto something. This is such an easier life without the stress of Twitter and without the yep. stress of, you know, being surrounded by people going crazy. And like I was in, like in New York the other week. All the one of the things I noticed is like New York had over the ever since I started going. First time I went in was 2002, right? And New York was interesting place. I went to Brooklyn. It was kind of scary, and over the years, New York got, became a very safe city while I was there. And I, I'm sure it was even worse for me. But this trip that we just had there, there's yeah. crazy people everywhere. And I, you know, I don't mean it as like, I don't mean it's like someone with a snob on looking down on people, but, but just people lying jacked up on the street, drunk, homeless. And I just feel like, I know it's bad in uh, LA now. And I just, I just really worry about a lot of this stuff. I, I agree. I mean, I, I spent most of my career going to New York once or twice a month. Yeah. And um, it was odd for me for the last two years, I've only been in New York once, twice, maybe. And I was, I think I was legitimately scared for my life when I went. You know, I I, I, I stayed in a hotel, you know, by, by Central Park and went to a dinner a couple blocks away. And then I was like, yeah, you know, after dinner, I usually like to go, you know, walk a few blocks and enjoy the city. And I walked a few blocks and I was like, I know I'm turning around and going back to my hotel. This is not... You know, this is not a safe place. It's not what it was. And these are neighborhoods that I'm used to walking in. You know, I, you know, I, I, I know the area and uh, everything had changed. Things were boarded up. People on the street selling all, all kinds of things that you hadn't seen since the 90s. Dude, yeah. Down by Times Square, there's yeah. the, like openly selling weed and cocaine. Oh, absolutely. Like openly. Yeah. And yeah. I was, I, in my head, I was sitting, not that I, look, I have no issue with drugs. I'm pre I've clearly had problems with drugs and uh, yeah, and all of New York smells of weed now. But I just was surprised that people were so brazenly selling cocaine. Yeah. And and, and I, it was, to me, a reflection on, you know, 
what's changing in the city. And I couldn't understand because it would be very easy for a, a you know, plainclothes police officer to right. walk down and arrest these people for selling cocaine. Yeah, that's right. But it's not happening. They, they feel perfectly comfortable to offer yeah. drugs on the street. And, and by the way, there might be a, a cop standing on a block a block away or standing on the street a block away with somebody openly selling cocaine and they don't, they don't want to touch them. Why do you, why do you think that is? I, 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 think, I think the police in the United States are in a really awkward position right now. Given given some you know the events in the last couple of years and uh, second it's just not worth it mm. you know there's no tourists to protect there's you know it's um, is it is it is it worth getting in a scuffle no it's just not but by the way what's really interesting is I've only been to New York once in the last I think it's once in the last two years I I, I could have I could have this wrong maybe 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 you know in the last eighteen months for sure but um, it's not even relevant for me to go to New York anymore. I know there was a few events a few weeks ago, Mainnet and Salt, and I, I opted not to go. Uh, I had other things that I was just busy doing. But outside of that, um, Miami has become the relevant place to go. The, the people that I do business with um, have all gone to Miami. It's funny you should say that. because So I went to New York. Because when I used to come and travel with the podcast before COVID, yeah. I used to have a, a journey. I'd go to New York. And then I would go to uh, somewhere like Florida or Ohio. Mm. Then I would go to Austin. And then I would go to LA and San Francisco. Yeah. And I would just collect up all my interviews. Uh, and we went to New York for one specific interview. I'd got another couple there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have needed to go. I mean, right. I didn't need to go to Salt or anything. But I've explained to you, like last night, I'm expecting to start coming out to the US and do a lot more interviews again in person. Yeah. I think my three main, well, previous to, the last couple of days, my two main places were going to be Austin and Miami. They're the right. two main places go. Yeah. I think Nashville's got, going to be added to the list. Yeah, I've yeah. become a massive fan of this place. We're, we're a distant third, but we're still third. Yeah, we're still third. <laughs> uh, but like, even thinking of considering taking my kids to New York, it's not the tourist destination it That's was. Right. It's kind of lost its edge. Um, and San Francisco, I've I've got zero reason now to go to San Francisco. Everybody's in, everybody's in Austin. Yeah. Which yeah. pr proves the federal system works. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if you, if you've noticed where the migration patterns are, and and, and we've noticed this, right? Um, San Francisco has relevant people have moved to Austin. Relevant people in New York have moved to Miami. Relevant people in Southern California have mostly moved to Nashville. Now, 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 granted, you know, LA's never been a, a you know. That's, that's where I live, but uh, it's never been really a financial powerhouse. There, there's a few big firms, but it's mostly entertainment. So it's it's a mix of finance people and entertainment people that have come here. Nashville's fucking great. Gosh, I love Man, it. I, yeah. The food's great. The people are great. I, you know, I haven't even looked at the properties yet, but I'm assuming it's going to be better than Austin right now because a lot of people have gone there. Yeah, yeah. Austin was already expensive. Yeah. Um, Nashville's getting there really, really, really fast. I'm gonna to need to get one here soon, man. Well, listen, yep. Steve, good to talk to you. Thanks for yeah. Thanks for dropping in and doing this. Um, I'm sure I'm gonna be talking to you again in many, you know, in a few months' time. And uh, wish you all the best. And thanks for the hospitality. No, thank you so much. Thanks for drinks last night, and thanks for having me on the show again. Not a problem, man. Okay, if you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, you can hop into my Telegram group or hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, if you want to support the show. 
These days, all I want is a review on Apple Podcasts. Just head over to Apple Podcasts. Hopefully, you think the show deserves five stars. Okay, have a great weekend, and I will see you all soon.